Father in heaven, thank you very much for the blessings that you have poured out upon us this morning, for the mercy that you have shown us yet again. And Father, as we, uh, as we seek to understand what your word has for us, may we uh, take to heart these things that are, are not only were they relevant and pertinent for Daniel in his day, but also for us in our day. And ultimately, we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, we're going we're gonna to jump into Daniel chapter 9 this morning. And I'd just like to kind of set the stage by reading the first three verses of Daniel chapter 9, where he writes, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. And so Daniel is kind of just setting the stage for what's going to come next. And he gives us a little bit of time. This is now first year of Darius the Mede in his rule. And it even explains for us a little bit more about that history that this was probably one of the Medes, right? Mede by descent, who was set up to be the governor or ruler or king over a certain area, preci uh, precisely the Babylonian area where Daniel was still. Now this, as, it's, as we're told, is first year of Darius has probably happened sometime between chapters 5 and 6. So in 5, you have the writing on the wall with King Belshazzar and the end of the Babylonian reign. And then in chapter 6, where it pleased Darius, this new ruler, the ruler for the Medes and the Persians, pleased Darius to appoint 100 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one was who was Daniel. And then you have that whole scenario that takes place where the administrators, the other two, and the satraps plotted against Daniel and said, hey, let's set up this new rule, get King Darius to set up a rule that says people can only pray to you for 30 days. Now, as we jump back in, because that's all the history, right? Chapters 1 through 6, the historical portion. We're still in now what's considered to be the prophetic portion. And Daniel's tying it to this real-time, real event place in his life. And it's before the lion's den, most likely, since it's in the first year of Darius's rule. So in between Belshazzar's end and the Babylonian end, and now the beginning of a new rule, and, uh, and Darius has now come into rule. So this is Daniel's perspective, right? It's like this huge cataclysmic change in authority and the rulers of the world, as we heard even in the, the vision with the goat and the ram. I mean, this is, this is world changing stuff. World powers are crashing and new ones are being set up. And, and Daniel's like, and here we still are. Right? We're still here in exile. What, what's going to happen next? And, uh, and how is God going to prov you know, provide? And how is he going to keep his promises? And so then when we look at Daniel chapter 9, those first verses, it says that I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the prophet Jeremiah. He's reading other prophets, reading his, he's reading his Bible, 
I can say it that way. You know, they had the, the, old, the Pentateuch, right? the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote. And then they also had heard or read, obviously, Daniel's reading, even here in exile, some of the words written down by Jeremiah the prophet. Where, and so let's take a look at what Jeremiah writes. Uh, we're going to flip over to Jeremiah 25. But as you can see, when these satraps and the, uh, the other administrators, they were trying to catch Daniel, well, they wouldn't be too hard because Daniel already had a pattern and a habit of reading his scriptures and praying. And that's what we see happening here. He's reading Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. And he says this, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, speaking of Judah, specifically Judah, Jerusalem, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Pretty specific. This word from Jeremiah is pretty specific. And so now Daniel's reading this. He says, well, one, we've already had a change in ruler and authority. Babylon is no longer ruling. There's the Medes and the Persians, and we have another ruler in the land of Babylon, reigning over this area that we know as Babylon, and it was supposed to last for 70 years. Verse 12, but when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. I will bring these things to that he has spoken. So Daniel's reading these, and even again, if we flip over a few chapters to 29, of Jeremiah 29 verse 1 this is actually written to those living in exile this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests the prophets and all the other people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon specifically now looking at verses 10 through 14 this is what the Lord says when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. Captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Yeah. So what's the time frame of Daniel and Jeremiah then? Is it, are they there at the same time, a little before? Was Jeremiah before is still in Jerusalem. Same time. Very similar time. There's overlap. <coughs> yeah, and so obviously Daniel is getting, because Jeremiah's writing letters and sending them to the exiles in Babylon. And so, yeah, there's some, they're not exactly parallel contemporaries, but there's overlap. And so you have Daniel receiving visions and prophecies from God as one of the exiles and living in Babylon and now uh, the Medes and Persian rule. And you have Jeremiah, as well as a couple other prophets in Jerusalem, still at, back at home, receiving, receiving prophecies from God. And so now there's this overlap. Excellent. So, so at this time, 
there's multiple prof profits at one time, where a lot of times you're, we're only hearing from one from a time frame, correct? Both and. Yeah, there are some times when there's a single profit. In the timeline, in that, yeah. And then there's other times when there is this overlap or they're in different places. So for even earlier on, there were times when there was a prophet in Judah and a prophet for the two southern tribes and a prophet for Israel, the northern ten tribes. And so you had prophets speaking from God at the same time, but obviously speaking a slightly different word because it was directed at those people. And so sometimes the prophets speaking to the ten northern tribes of Israel was speaking of some different circumstances that they were engaged in at the moment. And obviously, as you recall, Israel was done long before Judah. Those ten tribes were banished into exile, never to return um, before Judah. And so God makes this promise to the two tribes there in Judah, where Jerusalem is, that they would return. Does that help, Brett? Yeah. Anybody else questions on that? That's really important. The timeline and where there's prophets and when they were can get a little confusing. So, first point then, as as you hear Daniel speaking about reading Jeremiah, his first response from Daniel chapter nine. What's Daniel's first response? Prayer. Prayer. Yeah, he turns to the Lord in prayer. And he says, you know, because it could be a moment if we can really, I think, place ourselves in Daniel's situation where he's got this word that seems pretty direct and pretty clear from Jeremiah that says the rulers and the time frame, both of those things. And so if, if Daniel starts counting, you know, or he's looking at what's happening around him and the world is changing again, he's probably thinking, Maybe. I'm speculating a little bit here, but I think it's a reasonable speculation to say Daniel's probably thinking, so when are we going home? When are we going home? Because he's already lived a life that has been you know, proven to be one based in faith in God. Even from the moment they arrive, Daniel chapter 1, when they arrive in Babylon, we're going to trust God. And he says, this is how he wants us to live, and so we're going to ask to live that same way where you know you might change our names but we're not going to forget who we are we're not going to forget who we belong to and so can we eat some different food as simple as that can we not eat the food from the king's table because again this is all part of changing our identity changing who we are changing who we're going to trust changing who we're going to believe changing who we're going to be loyal to and so Daniel and the others say you can change our names, but there's some things that we are going to, because we believe, we trust in our God. Even in this crazy time of being taken our, into exile, and we're still going to trust God. And then you have that over and over again, that theme over and over again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even if God doesn't save us from this fiery furnace and death in these flames, O oh King, He has already saved us. So even if he doesn't do it like we would maybe like him to, or what you're suggesting, because the king is saying, right, you really think your God's going to save you from my hands. He's obviously thinking in the context of the furnace. He's thinking in the context of their judgment and death. He says, you really think your God's going to save you? And their answer is, our faith is in God. And even if he doesn't save us the way we would like it to be, we're trusting him. 
again, lion's den. They come against Daniel. They try and, and, and they do. They're successful. And sometimes that's something to keep in mind, right? Sometimes it seems like evil is successful. Sometimes it seems like the evil one is winning. Sometimes based on the circumstances, it would look like he has the upper hand. Yeah. Yeah. I think if we were to ponder our own histories, we would all have time still, in, you know, where it seems like Satan's winning. And Daniel is sitting here thinking it, it could sure look like Satan's winning. I mean, these guys set a trap, and it worked. And now I'm in the lion's den. But his words are the same thing to Darius. God is the one who will save me. Even though you, king, cannot, right? That's a powerful statement. Even though Daniel says to the king, I know you can't save me, but God can. So the theme, right? Page after page, verse after verse, about God's faithfulness, and therefore people responding in faith to him. Same thing here. Daniel's sitting there saying, God, I know you're faithful, and and I've been trusting you all along, and you have proven that your love never fails, and that you are faithful to your people, and you keep your promises. I'm just curious how you're going to keep this one. I think that's where Daniel's at. I can't see it. I don't see how you're going to keep this promise. And it may have even looked like it was about to happen. Belshazzar goes down. Babylon goes down. But now we're under the rule of others. How's, what's happening next? So he prays. And he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Because again, you remember what we heard in Jeremiah. The words that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon is, when you repent, when you return, when you call upon God, he'll hear you. So Daniel says, I will, I will pray to the Lord and I will confess. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love and with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. That's where Daniel starts. Not a bad place to start. In fact, I don't mean to be facetious or flippant in that. But I think that that's just a reminder for us. I mean, I think Daniel here has a, a really powerful pattern of prayer. He starts out by saying, I know who you are, God, and I know who I am. And I know who these people are that I am counted among, that I belong to. And we're sinners and we're broken. And so the first thing I'm going to do is confess. And so he calls upon the great and awesome God. And he bases his confession on the fact that God keeps his promises. Which is what we do when we look at 1 John chapter 1. Where God tells John to write, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. And will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, God never changes. He is faithful yesterday, today, and forever. And so... Daniel says, you're the one who keeps your promises. You keep uh, the covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. 
The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, are in the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. That's, I mean, he says, this is why we can, I, I know, this is why we're dealing with the circumstances we're in, why we are receiving the just penalty due for our sinfulness, our rebellion, our unfaithfulness. And so just like you promised, unfaithfulness, disobedience, rebellion, rejection of his love has consequences. So in the EBS it says treachery. And that speaks like, to you, Jess? Yeah, I mean, that, that it's, word. Like, it's just a different level of wrongness to me than some of the other ones. Yeah. I think we use the other ones so more commonly that that one just points out treachery. Treachery. It, it, uh, it's piercing. And I think, Jess, since you bring it up, and I don't know if this is what you meant, but if I'm going to springboard off of that, treachery, boy, if somebody's treacherous towards us, right? Maybe it's because we don't, we don't use that word very often. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It stands out because the other ones we use more commonly. Yeah. This one just seems to be a harsher level. I mean, it's an ultimate betrayal, isn't it? That's kind of the, that's kind of the meaning, I, yeah. as, you, as you mentioned, that word treachery. It's, it's just a betrayal. Where we, these, what Daniel is saying is, God, we used your love, your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness against you. Yeah. We took advantage of it. And we used your love and grace for our own sake. And that's treachery, isn't it? Yeah, thank you, Jess, for pointing that out. And Daniel leaves no stone unturned. He's like, you know, it's all of us. And you gave us, you gave us your word and your promises. And you gave us your grace and you provided a means for us to respond in faith and to turn from our own wicked ways. You did this over and over again. You sent the prophets to us over and over again. And you sent them to us and to our leaders and to our forefathers. And so basically what he's saying in a nutshell is, God, you are righteous, holy, blameless. There's no fault in you. It's all in us. You know, what I really love about this chapter two and about Daniel is because we see kind of through his life that he really hasn't been doing anything wrong. He's been faithful. <laughs> and so, I mean, a lot of times, like when you're trying so hard, you could see almost a prayer, Lord, I am trying, and this is hard. And But I love how he just puts himself with the rest of the people. We, mm -hmm. we have sinned against you. We have, and he doesn't count at all anything where he's trying and he's trying to follow God and he's trying to be faithful. It's, he recognizes that he's part of the whole group. Yeah. And so I love that about him, his humbleness. That's, that's the word, isn't it? And in such contrast to treachery yeah. rather than his humility. And he does say, I love that, Lisa. I mean, he's trying. And we can have numerous opportunities that we just kind of did a moment ago where it seemed as though Daniel did, right? I mean, we would say he was faithful to God and to his promises and lived out his faith. And, and yet Daniel will say, no, I'm, I'm with everybody else. Um, these things that I have, these moments when I have lived by faith, these moments when I have been faithful are not mine to claim. And they certainly don't earn me anything. And so he still says, I'm with everybody else. I still need saving. So a powerful act of humble faith. And he goes on, and so like you pointed out, um, 
he includes himself in that same treachery. And he says, we're all covered with shame, but you are not. You, Lord, have been completely merciful. So I'm going to read verse 9. Um, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses. So now he's referring to the book of Deuteronomy specifically. Probably Exodus as well, where we have in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments listed for us. But when he says, you know, the, the curses and the sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. Deuteronomy, especially that second half of the book of Deuteronomy, I mean, there's a situation where half the people are on one mountain and half are on the other, and they're shouting back and forth. It, here's the law, and if we obey the law, one group would yell out all the blessings. And if we disobey the law, all the other group would yell out all the curses. And so it was kind of a back and forth to remind and to emphasize, God is faithful, and here's the law. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with what we have received uh, from God? So now, not only is Jeremiah referring to the prophets like Jeremiah, but he's going back to what everybody, every Israel would, Israelite should have known. Right? If one generation had been faithful to the next generation in teaching them. Because that's how Deuteronomy starts. Deuteronomy 6, that you are to pass this on from one generation to the next, teaching it to your children every day, all day. When you rise up, when you lie down, while you're eating, while you're walking, while you're working, while you're playing, it's all the time sharing these truths that God has given to us to the next generation. But they failed to do so. And so you have generation upon generation upon generation not knowing what the word of the Lord is and just doing whatever whatever they think is right in their own eyes. And so, but Daniel here, these years later, is looking back in both uh, in Deuteronomy, and he's saying, and you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. So he's saying from an, a negative perspective, if I, can, if I can say it that way, God's faithfulness. You see, if God had said, here's the punishment you can expect if you disobey, and then he doesn't do it, what does that say about God? He's not, He's not faithful. He doesn't keep his promises. You can't count on him. Now, that's something kids don't, you know, I mean, what happens with parenting and kids all the time? If you don't do that, you're going you're gonna to take away. It'll be a spanking. You're going to go to bed, whatever. The more you threaten and don't follow through, the less The more unfaithful you become. The right, they, Dylan? The, yeah, the less yeah. they believe you. And the less they believe you. While they may like getting out of the punishment for a time, what in the deeper sense is they learn is that my parents are unfaithful. My parents don't keep their promises. And I can manipulate them. And yes, very true. And the fear is not there. There's no reason to because who's in charge? Exactly. But here you see that's true that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, as the Proverbs say. And so he says again, verse 12, You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers 
by bringing upon us great disaster. Under, under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. That's just as transparent as you can get. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong, O Lord, in, in keeping, O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem. So he's still calling upon God's faithfulness. He says, you've kept your promises for judgment. Now keep your promises for redemption. Keep your Just like you did with the people who were living in Egypt, you brought them out. You redeemed them. You set them free. So he's still, now he's saying, now because you are faithful, please be faithful in redemption as well. Um, O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor upon your desolate sanctuary. For whose sake? For his own sake. For who? For God's sake. For God's sake. For God's sake, forgive us. For God's sake, look upon us with great mercy. That's what we say every time we announce the forgiveness of sins, right? For Christ's sake forgive us because it is Christ who died on the cross for us God the Father honors Christ his life and death and resurrection every time he forgives us and it's for his sake because he longs for us to be forgiven the scriptures are clear clear he does not want to be angry with us just like you don't want to be angry with your kids when they have disobeyed you don't want to stay angry with them. You want it to be over. You want to return to harmony. You want to restore. And that doesn't come from us. That comes from God. That's something that God sh shares of himself with every parent. And so he's, he doesn't want to stay angry with us. If he's going to be faithful to the promises, he has to. Right? Does that but he doesn't want to, so he provides for redemption. Daniel is saying, he calls out upon God, for your sake, God, be merciful to us sinners. For your sake, God, forgive us sinners. Oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. So as people who bear the name of Christ, we have received the sign of the Holy Cross both upon our forehead and upon our heart and holy baptism to mark us as those who have been redeemed by Christ. And so, we also bear the name of Christ. These are, I mean, I hope, these are tremendous words that Daniel is sharing with us. And so he starts out the whole thing. He's been reading Jeremiah. He's been reading uh, Moses. And he says, I'm going to confess on behalf of all of us because I am, as, as Delisa pointed out, because I am one of all of us. And ask God to demonstrate his mercy and grace. So, 
notice he's not worried about, even though there's all these things changing, Babylon, Medes and Persia, new kings, he's not worried about that. But he wants to be prepared for whatever God's doing. And he knows that being prepared means confessing, believing. And then we go on, right? While I was speaking and praying. Oh, a side note that I should mention, it's not clear in the English language. So I just want to mention this. <coughs> Chapters 1 through 6, Daniel is most often referring to God as, in the Hebrew, as El. Or Elohim. Which means, simply, God. That's the, I mean, just as we refer to God in the same sense. It's kind of his most um, uh, general name. Familiar. Familiar. Thank you. Better word. Familiar name. But here in this chapter, chapter 9, and specifically his prayer, he's using the, the name Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And so Genesis chapter 15 is, again, I think an important link. And, under, and I think it's just fascinating to me how Daniel is, is drawing upon all these other places in Scripture as he, as he makes his prayer to God. And so I'm not going to read all of Genesis 15, but just a few first verses 15 verse 1 after this the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision do not be afraid Abram I am your shield your very great reward but Abram said O sovereign Lord he says O Yahweh what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit is uh, my state is Eliezer of Damascus and Abram said you have given me no children so a servant in my household will be the, my heir and then the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. <coughs> and Abraham, Abraham believed the Lord, Yahweh. And so throughout Genesis 15, Abram is referring to God as the covenant-keeping God. And now in Daniel 9, he makes a switch in how he addresses God in his prayer to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And, and so even when we start talking about what's next with the years, 70 years, and then even beyond that, these, uh, the other vision in the 77s, he's referring to God as the covenant-keeping God. So in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, the answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. <coughs> Highly esteemed, that phrase. Not based on his works, not based on Daniel's works or faithfulness, based on his confession, based on his confession of sin and reliance upon God for forgiveness. So he's esteemed. It's not works. It's faith. 24, verse 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, 
to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. This is a whole lot bigger than returning to Jerusalem, which is what Daniel's prayer was about, the 70 years that Jeremiah wrote about. And now the angel Gabriel is saying, oh, wait, there's so much more. Things you didn't even ask about, but I'm going to share with you. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets of, uh, trench and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler will come, to, sorry, who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. Well, what's, what comes to mind immediately? Noah. Noah. Come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay. <laughs> and Daniel's like, when are we going back to Jerusalem? <laughs> so, uh, we've got a few things that we're going to try and unpack. Let me first tell you, as with, uh, you know, both in chapters 7 and 8, there are sometimes more questions than answers as we, as we consider um, what these, what these uh, prophecies mean. In 26, sorry. He said the anointed one. Who's he referring to? In 26. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He says, um, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one shall come and cut off. It's very beginning in 26. Oh. Yeah, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Who is the anointed one? The Messiah, Jesus. The Messiah. And in mine it says put to death. Uh-huh. On a cross. That doesn't say on a cross. This one but says have nothing. Yes. So when Jesus... So this is the prophecy of Jesus uh -huh. right here. It is. Okay. He will be cut off from the land of the living. But he is also cut off. What does he cry out? Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? He will have nothing. He will have nothing. He will be completely cut off. From his father. Yeah, the Trinity is broken. Yeah. Nothing. And so, thanks for bringing that up, Jeanette. I mean, that is that is the yeah, it's kind of, kind of that is the crux of this whole thing. Yeah. Because one of the themes of Daniel is not only is God sovereign over all the things that happen in this world, He's sovereign over everything that happens in heaven and on earth. As Jesus says, right when He gives His great commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Me. So go and make disciples. I mean, he says, I have all authority over all things in heaven and on earth. But also what this is, the theme of, of Daniel is God is preparing the world for the anointed one. Preparing the world for the Messiah. So again, in context, Daniel's saying, Jeremiah said we're going home in 70 years. When is that happening? Because it's sure, I mean, we're getting near the end of 70. Is really what Daniel's, I mean, he can do the math. We're getting near the end of 70. I don't, I don't see this happening. How is this going to happen? And so I'm going to share a bit of information about the 70 years in just a moment, which is important to understand because really what the angel Gabriel is saying, okay, 70 years will happen. 
you're going to go home. The exiles will return to Jerusalem. But God is doing this greater thing of preparing the entire world for the Messiah, the anointed one, who will put an end to sin, who will atone. Right? These words that are written can only, they don't happen because the people return to Jerusalem. They can only happen in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's when he's cut off. So that's, thanks, Janetta, for focusing our attention on that. Uh, so just again to make kind of a, a differentiation between the 70 years that Daniel is talking about after reading Jeremiah, but then also where the angel comes with 70 sevens. Um, so Nehemiah, if you want to jot this down, if you're taking notes, Nehemiah chapter 9 is important for this as well. Ezra, again, two other prophets, similar time frame as Daniel. In Nehemiah chapter 9, the fact, I'm just going to read some notes to, for clarity. The fact that Israel was disobedient, right? Daniel says we were disobedient, refused to follow through on what was supposed to happen even back after they took the promised land. Joshua led them into the promised land, and they were supposed to step on every part of the ground that God was giving to them, and they didn't. They stopped short, and they left other people in the land that were worshiping other gods and other idols, and they didn't. They were not faithful, even back at that moment. And so um, you have Joshua saying, you know, this is what was supposed to happen. The land which Jehovah swore unto the fathers to give them was not actually all completely received by the people. And so they were unfaithful. They rebel. Now, another national promise to Israel was that they would be delivered from captivity. This is Jeremiah. That she would return to the land, rebuild the temple, reinstitute the, re the blood sacrifices on the altars, and so forth. What of the promise? When was it going to happen? Well, what we have is <coughs> in the first year of Sirius, king of Persia, Cyrus. Sorry, I'm having a hard time reading this morning. Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Jehovah by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, Jehovah stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth um, are Jehovah's, the God of heaven has given me, and he hath given me charge over them, and now to rebuild the house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So whoever among you are his people... Uh, his God be with you, and you return to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Jehovah, the God of Israel. This is in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So Daniel sees this huge cataclysmic change in, in authorities and kingdoms, and then in the first year, one of the first things Cyrus does is, okay, by proclamation, any of you who are Jews, go home. Rebuild the temple. And so he kept his promise. God kept his promise, even though... Sure, people didn't see it coming. And then whoever is left, you know, goes on and says you can give free will. In fact, in fact, the king gives them a whole bunch of money to go back and rebuild the temple. So Cyrus gave this decree, and where the word of Jehovah by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. Even this king, Cyrus, acknowledges the prophecy that Jeremiah said was from God and that it's being faithful. So... Thus saith Jehovah, after 70 years are accomplished for Babylon, I will visit you, perform my good word towards you, cause you to return to this place. So we have right there, and it, the math works out. Jeremiah predicted that Israel would go into captivity at 626 B.C. 
And after that 70 years, she would be returned to Palestine. So Jerusalem actually fell to the Babylonians in 586, even though there was like several waves. We knew that, right? Even, even Nebuchadnezzar, the first attack was when he was a prince on his way back from Egypt. He attacked them and they fell under the rule of Babylon at that time, even though the exiles happened over a period of time. So Cyrus's decree, so the first captivity started in 606, and then Cyrus's decree came in 537, 536, somewhere in the first year of his reign. And so we would look at that and say, Jeremiah's 70 years were fulfilled when King Cyrus sends them back home. And that that is 70 years. Important for the moment, right, for Daniel. Okay, God's faithful. He's keeping his promise. He said 70 years. He's 70 years. But also to distinguish it from these 77s that, that the angel is now speaking of. And so I just want to read these verses again to clarify for us these impossibilities. I mean, for Daniel, it would have seem, seemed impossible that they were actually going to return to Jerusalem. That would have seemed impossible. But God says, here, the real impossibility, through the angel Gabriel, these time frames, and that's 77s. We could try and map that out somehow, but it doesn't tell us again. Is it years? Is it days? Is it centuries? We don't know. It's 77s, which we know through Daniel and the prophecies and the, and the, way, the way numbers are used can sometimes mean something deeper. In my version, it translated into weeks. Weeks is often the translation. Yeah, weeks. And IV says we're not even going to try and put weeks on it. The translators for the NIV says, we don't know. We think that this is probably meaning something else. A period of time, so you have seven, 70 of sevens. And, uh, and so those seven is an important number, right? It's complete. And then it's times 10 again it's for the 70. So it's God's perfect amount of time to complete what he is working on. So I want to read these verses again. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression. They're not finishing their transgression. God's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of their transgressions. To put an end to sin and to atone for wickedness and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Those are things only Christ can do. So he's saying there's a period of time set and the Savior will come. And this is what he'll do. And he'll do it for you and for all people. And that's all the time we've got this morning. So my encouragement, right, is that if we are going to be like Daniel, we confess our sins. We seek God's mercy for his sake. We don't do it because of our own righteousness, but because of God's grace. That's how we live. Not based on our own righteousness, but God's grace. And I would just love to share a few thoughts with you about prayer then. So we should pray in faith. Matthew chapter 21, verse 22 says, we approach God in faith. James in chapter 1 says, it's the only way to approach God is in faith. And then we pray because the Holy Spirit prompts us to pray. Daniel was prompted to pray by the Holy Spirit. 
as he read the words of God, he was compelled to pray, and so he did so. 1 Corinthians 12.3, the Holy Spirit prompts us to pray. And Romans 8.26, Paul says, and even when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays. I think Lisa made a very good point, too, of the way Daniel prayed in humility. In humility. Because that's not, remembering Daniel's... Not pointing out, like you said, you know, well, I've been faithful, I've done all this. But Forgive these that is That is a sure way to not have our prayers answered, Dylan. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> is to say that, God, you should listen to me because of who I am and what right. I've done. Um, rather, God, because of what I've done, forgive me. And then hear my prayer. So, Father, we do that now. We do confess that we are broken people and that we do not deserve for you to hear us. We do not deserve to receive your grace and mercy. We don't deserve your Savior. But you sent him to become our Savior. So help us to respond with humble faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.